Hello and welcome to the words we use. Have you ever struggled with finding the right words to give meaning, depth, and clarity to your message? We have, and that's exactly what we're going to examine. Come along with us as we expand our communication knowledge. TWWU team, please introduce yourselves. Hi, I'm Pat. Hi, I'm Sue. Hi, I'm Sarah. Hi, I'm Carissa. Hi, I'm Bill. Hi, I'm Lisa. Hi, I'm Gary. And, and we, we are, are the Word Hi, I'm Pat, and I'd like to introduce the rest of our team. Sue. Sarah. Lisa. Carissa. Gary. And Bill. Today, the topic is going to be the language of leadership. The five values of leadership in life. A leader is the one who knows the way, goes the way, and shows the way. They do this in the words they use. Organizations that clearly define and support their values are proven to outperform organizations that don't. According to the Foundation for a Better Life, they have billboards entitled Pass It On, with each billboard highlighting an important value. These five values and words are integrity, confidence, commitment, giving back, and communication in leaders. Words leaders also use similarly convey feelings of sincerity, trust, honesty, empathy, compassion, perseverance, shared sacrifice, and competency. And we see that when they speak. Now, the above five values are necessary to effective government or organizational leadership as well. At the individual level, values are those little things we do each and every day that exemplify who we are. They aren't trendy business jargon. They're timeless guides that drive everything we do. We have a choice every day to live in support of our values or in spite of our values. So the first value is integrity. Integrity requires brutal honesty, selflessness, and a desire to do what's right, even at a personal cost. Breaches of integrity sever trust forever. So Sue, President Nixon was caught using his words on the famous Watergate tapes. When the Supreme Court ordered him to release the tapes, how did these breaches of trust affect Americans? Well, it's very interesting. Watergate was in the 70s, actually 73 and 74. The beginning of Watergate was prior to his reelection, or the beginning of talking about it. Right. However, it did not impact his reelection, and he was reelected. The more that the information came out, there were surveys taken about his effectiveness as a leader, and then as it went on, should he be removed from office? So in May of 1973, the Senate Watergate hearing started, and still there were quite a few people who approved of the job that Nixon was doing, um, close to 50%. As that time went on, and more people realized how involved Nixon was, that his integrity was not what they had expected or what they had thought it was, there, was, there became a, a point of 57% thought he should be removed from office. Now, this really was something that had not happened before, that the public were, had not been aware of such abuse of the public office, and they were very upset. 
And since then, they have come to do a lot of questioning in the government because Nixon did step down before he was impeached, but they were talking about impeachment for several months until he finally stepped down. I do have something to add. He was refusing to step down. Initially, yes. Initially, and the Republican leaders, including George Herbert Walker Bush, who was the head of the CIA at the time, a a delegation of Republican leaders went to see him and they advised him to step down because there was not enough support in the Senate to acquit him. So this was even before the trial started. But if there would have been an impeachment, the, the Senate would have indicted him. Right. So yeah, it was. It took a lot of talking to, to get him to back down and a lot of damage to the country. Any Anybody else have anything to add? He also had some supporters that that supported him through thick and thin as we're seeing now with the Trump administration. So what is the difference between the Trump administration and the Republicans compared to Nixon? I think that Trump is being allowed to get away with a lot more destruction than Nixon was, that the the other politicians started to put an end to what Nixon could do, whereas it doesn't seem like, it doesn't seem like Trump has any boundaries at all, his own or other people's. He doesn't have to follow the law. He doesn't have to follow what is normal, everyday courtesy. So he has a lot wider spectrum of behavior that is very destructive. There's a couple ex-military people in this group, but I've always been told, and I could see it in the management where I work, that leaders are not supposed to admit to doing anything wrong because it undermines the confidence of their subordinates. Yeah, I think that's changing because when somebody can't admit they're wrong and you know they're wrong, it just makes me trust them less, even though they seem very confident about something. And you challenge, you question their integrity of who they are as a person. Carissa? Yeah, I was just going to say for, um, I was in the Air Force Reserves for 10 years. And during that time, we were always told integrity first. And with our leadership, they would say that it's better to say that you messed up and explain that and to everyone. And that's the sign of a good leader of saying, yeah, I thought I was making a good decision and apparently wasn't. It didn't turn out the way that I thought it would or something to that effect. And it's very important, at least for me personally, hearing that from a leader makes me trust them a little bit more, especially if they explain themselves in a very honest and open way, because we're all human beings. The idea that if you don't say that you messed up kind of gives the impression, at least for me, that you're above other people. And I don't see how you can lead people if you think you're above them. And we recently had the incidents of uh, the COVID uh, infection on that, the Navy ship, where the captain was removed, but his people on the ship were totally behind him because they recognized leadership in the military wasn't listening to their commander. And they were backing him because he was protecting them, uh, trying to get word out about the COVID. People know when a leader has their interests at heart, are just his own. And so if you're thinking that the leader doesn't really care about you, your life, your needs, your dreams, whatever, you might follow him because you have to, 
like in a work situation, but you won't follow them of free will and you won't give as good of service or commitment to him as if you thought he had your good in mind. I was told by a drill sergeant in advanced training when I was in the military that uh, the only people who don't make mistakes are the people who don't do anything. So if you're if you make a mistake, it, at least you're doing something about whatever issue you have to work with and that's up to it. Have integrity, as Carissa said, integrity first. That, that's always the bottom line. I think the sign of true leadership is one who can be open and honest with themselves and also surround themselves with a support system that is going to be knowledgeable and proficient in all the areas that perhaps they're not, because I don't think any one person can be the be all and end all of all the knowledge and leadership that has to take place. So I think admitting that they cannot be the supreme being, they need the support of many, and that includes gaining knowledge and admitting when, you know what, I don't have all the resources for this, I don't know the answer, but I'm willing to reach out to find those that do. It's nice to hear that there's a change in that attitude because when I first started working, I was in 21 years old, and there were a lot of Vietnam veterans working at this particular place. And one of them took me aside. He's the one that told me that you don't admit to making a mistake if you don't have to. Once they figure it out, then you have to come clean. But until then, you just go about your business like you made the right decision. You, won't, you don't want to show weakness, but it's, it's nice that that attitude is changing. However, where's the limit? Exactly. How many mistakes can you admit to before people lose confidence and you're no longer an effective leader? Well, depending on the situation, wherever you are, that mistakes can get you killed. So you try to make as few of them as possible. I think prior to Nixon, people really didn't question the integrity of the president and his people. And I think since then, leading up to Trump, there have been different things that have happened along the way that people are questioning the integrity much more. So therefore, it's vital that that president is able to answer those questions and provide that information, provide correct information. That's a good point, Sue. And I, I think you're right. I don't remember anybody questioning Eisenhower, Truman, Kennedy. Obviously, they were questioning Johnson because of all the demonstrations against Johnson in the war. But Nixon was really the first one that we even questioned his integrity or his ability. So that's a good point. I think, especially back then, a lot of people in general had a lot more knowledge of the government and how it worked. And they were kind of more involved in trying to learn about it. And I think that's changed over time of maybe not a lot. There's, a, there's only the elite few, quote unquote, that know what's going on and we don't need to worry about it as civilians. And I think that's a, a lot of a good part of why things have changed so drastically, maybe. That's an attitude of putting civilians as children. I think people with a lot of power tend to downgrade other people into that that lower position as, oh, they're, they're not smart enough to run their own lives. Oh, they don't know whatever. They can't keep it together like we can. We can run their life so much better. And I think that's what we're seeing is that when they start doing that, they're not running our lives better than we can run our lives. And so they've lost a lot of trust. Possibly, but I think, I'm sorry if I misspoke. I guess I was more thinking of how there's a tendency of thinking that higher educated 
there's a separation of like supposedly higher educated people are better and than others. There shouldn't be that mentality of separation of education is just for the certain few, it's for everybody. And just to have that kind of wanting knowledge of understanding what's going on, that's not become a norm anymore. It's been separated to, oh, well, the people with money know what they're doing because they can afford college and doing all that stuff. With internet and everything now, there should be able to have access to get a general knowledge of how things work, even in your county or in your city. Uh, Carissa, I can I can dispute the fact, or that I can dispute what you said about rich people knowing what they're doing all the time. Right. No, I, I get that. I think it's just a mentality of thinking that that's it's not a factual statement, I understand oh, yeah. that, but it's just maybe a general thought of that's how it's supposed to be. I totally and understand I... that. You're right. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. I think they'd like to think they know more than the common man or the common person. I think some might, obviously, but I don't yeah. think everyone not does. Everybody. Yeah. Yeah. I've seen a big shift in the attitude towards education where it's almost like some people are proud not to know anything or not to be educated. And I don't know where that comes from. There's a backlash against education that I didn't see in my younger years. It was like, you always try to strive and, and get educated so you can get a better life and a better job. And that went away. I'm, I guess when education became so expensive that sometimes it doesn't pay to have a PhD or whatever, you're not going to get that money back. Very good points. The second value is confidence. Confident leaders are able to make tough decisions, rally the troops, and inspire others to achieve their potential. The number one characteristic most common among successful leaders is supreme confidence. Winston Churchill stated during World War II, let us go forward together to all parts of the empire, to all parts of the island. There is not a week, not a day, not an hour to lose. Sarah, how did these words impact the British during their darkest hours? It was survival for these people. They were under attack. They were being bombed. Their cities were being bombed. He had to show confidence. He couldn't say, oh dear, what's going on, whatever. We're, we're going to lose because he had to rally the people to fight back, to keep their country, to keep their culture, to not give in because th there were people who wanted to just give the country over to Hitler because they thought that that way, at least we can save ourselves. One thing about Winston is he never gave up. He had that famous speech and it went, never, never, never give up. And so he instilled that in the people of the United Kingdom that they couldn't give up. They, they, this was their home, they couldn't give up or they would lose everything. But he also instilled in him then the confidence of, we can get through this, we can survive, we can win. And I think that was his biggest donation to the country is have, giving him them the courage and the confidence and the hope, especially the hope that they could make it through these dark times. Did anybody see the movie, The Darkest Hour? It's about Winston Churchill. It was talked about his courage and, and exactly what Sarah said with the Battle of Dunkirk and they needed to rescue the men. 
Lord Chamberlain wanted to basically give in to Hitler and have all these men at Dunkirk surrender. And Churchill said, no way. So he made plans and he got the men rescued out of Dunkirk. The movie and the book are amazing. And he was just very eloquent in his speech. Amazing words he would use. I, I just want to go back to the Dunkirk. Those were ordinary people going over there to get rescue the soldiers. Those were like fishermen in their boats. Whoever had a boat went over there and picked up whoever they could. They were going over there. They might not have even had weapons to defend themselves, but they were so committed to their country and so committed to their fellow man that they were going to rescue them. I was just going to say confidence is great. However, our current leader appears to have a lot of confidence in himself, but he is missing some of those other values. What's the difference between confidence and arrogance? I don't see him as confident at all. I see him as covering up. I have a hard time watching him, so I don't. The way that Churchill was able to say the right thing at the right time, to keep everybody grounded. They went into that Dunkirk evacuation expecting to save 20,000, 30,000, and ended up saving 233,000, I think the estimate was. Everybody was ready to celebrate. He said, no, it's not time for celebrating yet. And not in those, those words exactly. He said it so eloquently, the whole speech is preserved as is for people to study and they're still trying to interpret it, according to some of the comments on the internet. When I watch things on TV about World War II, he was just a man in the right place at the right time with the right skills. Before and after that, he didn't do much. Boy, sometimes leadership is just knowing when to say the right thing and being able to do that. I don't think our current leadership has that kind of ability. I can kind of give Trump credit for at least trying to keep people positive, even though he doesn't do a real good job of it. A lot of people don't believe him. But I'm kind of wondering if he admitted that he made a mistake. There's so many people out there that think that he's just the best president we've ever had. My number two daughter is one of them, but I think she listens to her husband too much. If he were to admit that he was doing things wrong, well, now he'd lose the confidence of all the people that still believe in him. There's going to be a bunch of people that don't believe in the president, no matter what he does, no matter what party he belongs to. As long as he can keep the people who are on his side, on his side, he can rebound. So Gary, do you think he's trying to be positive or is he trying to manipulate? Yep. <laughs> Good answer. <laughs> uh, that's what he does. Yeah. If he can't stay positive, then he has to point the finger. Blame. He has to blame somebody else. He can't take responsibility for it. Even though if you want to take credit for the good things that happen, you got to take responsibility for the bad things. You can't have it both ways. I remember hearing when I was in business that praise goes down, blame goes up. Yep. Praise the people who did the work and they did, if it doesn't work out, you get the blame. Face up to it. I think another sign of a confident leader is somebody who has a good understanding of the betterment and the cause that they're pursuing, and they have a good team around them, and they're not just in it for self-preservation. So they're truly in it to pursue the core of that cause and the betterment of it and how everyone can be moved forward instead of just thinking about what's the greater good for myself as opposed to what's the greater good for the greater group of people and for the country and for the nation.
And I think we see such a diversion and dichotomy between our current leadership and those that have preceded us in the sense that, in my belief, it's just all about self-preservation and what's going to make me look the best. How am I going to come out on top rather than, you know, I don't care what I look like or how I'm perceived, but I'm going to roll up my sleeves and get my hands in the soil and do what needs to be done for the betterment of this country and the nation, regardless of how it makes me look at the end of the day. And I just think it's so interesting how there's such fractions and splintering amongst our current leadership in, in what that really should be defined as. Am I confident or am I just looking out for myself? Lisa, you're so right. If I can add something, the company I worked for faced a, a very trying period. We almost went under. And so the employees purchased the company from the founder of the business. The guy who became president, he said that if this doesn't work for all of us, it's not going to work for any of us. He instilled such confidence in us that we all, all of us rolled up our sleeves. We were now the owners of this business and we rolled up our sleeves and we got the job done. And the company is thriving. I was very pleased to be a part of that process for a number of years. And I was able to retire with it and get a nice package afterwards. But it was the confidence of the president of the company who really kept us going, kept us motivated to do our best and get all the jobs done that have to get done. We all wore a lot of hats. And it was because of his confidence and his, his presence that made the difference. So Lisa, you were right on with what you just said. Value three, commitment. Leaders show commitment when they invest in developing short and long-term plans. Clearly articulate their vision and goals and then stick to it all. Without commitment, promises are empty. Barack Obama, in his commencement speech to the nation, to the nation's graduates of 2020 last Saturday, stated, one, don't be afraid, two, do what you think is right, be fair and honest, and three, build a community. Do you think President Obama's message, not only to the graduates, but also to the nation will be impactful or motivate people? I would hope so, at least for the ones that we're watching and potentially will rewatch on YouTube. And for, I did rewatch it before this podcast again, just to make sure I had everything kind of understood. And for the first of Don't Be Afraid, um, he was more talking about how America has gone through issues before of pandemics and crisis and things of that nature and how we've looked at those and tried to put them into a proper perspective to make things a little bit better. And that's a generational thing that happens, at least I think, for every generation. They see the mistakes of their elders and they try to say, well, this isn't working, so let's try something else. And then mm -hmm. for the second one, for doing what's right or do what you think is right and be fair and honest, it was talking to kind of that instant gratification that yeah, it might be nice at this point in time, but down the road, will it really be a value of you and the people around you? And then for the last one, no one does anything large by themselves. And at this time, a lot of, I think a lot of people are kind of feeling isolated in more ways than one of saying, well, I just need to take care of myself and my family. I think the idea of remembering that there are other people around you, even though we're all closed off from each other, to try to take the steps forward of establishing, yes, the next generation, you have a chance to learn from the mistakes of others and 
try to improve upon things that are kind of working or to adjust the things that may no longer be working for everybody, especially with this, the COVID, well, a lot of things, to be honest, things have been shown that they aren't the way that everyone thought they were to begin with. I really do hope that people take that to heart, just kind of keep motivating to move forward because I kind of use the phrase of Freddy Krueger, Krueging, Freddy Kruegering something of if you don't talk about it, then it doesn't exist. But you have to talk about it because it does exist and you have to face it. And it might be ugly and it might be terrifying. Mentally, I think everyone can overcome the issues that seem to be a constant in our society, at least historically I've seen or read. I watched the speech also, and I thought it was nice because it was brief to the point it carried a lot of meaning for me, and I thought it carried a lot of meaning for the, the graduates, too. And I think it's one, I would like to believe it's one that they will remember. That man has a knack for saying the right thing at the right time. He is a brilliant man, and I think he has a lot of courage, a lot of integrity, and I wish he was still president. He just has better speech writers? Right. <laughs> That's what I was going to say. But <laughs> he has a lot of people, no, he has a lot of good people around him, and and right. I think that's another part of being a good leader is realizing you don't want to surround yourself with a bunch of yes men, but you need to have that, yeah. a couple of devil advocates kind of to poke holes in your ideals of real, because of realization of like, oh, this is a great plan. It's like, well, is it really just kind of have that adjustment? And I think also, if you believe in something yourself, it's easy to express to others, especially in very concise, clear ways. I think people have tried that, but they don't work for Trump anymore. Yes, that's very true. I think with Obama, what I like to do is look at how people, what they do, what their actions are, how they treat others. Mm -hmm. You can always say sweet words, but it's how they treat others, how they show respect, how they support others, especially in times of crisis. That's when you see who is a leader and who is not. It's not always in what they say. It's not in their words. It's what they do. Watch what they do. That's how you find out who the person is. And a lot of Trump's people, Trump attracts people that act like him. Whereas Obama attracted people who had the the same values. And it shows in the differences in their administrations. And if you don't have Trump's values, like Gary said, you don't last. But even if you do have his values and have supported him, if you make a mistake, you're out of there. Well, you're out of there or else you go to prison. (laughs) The reason you're out of there is you go to prison. You know, there's always a bus going by. You just have to look over your shoulder. Yeah. (laughs) Value four is giving back. Employees and people follow leaders who demonstrate the value of giving back. They feel pride working for leaders who who care about social good as well as the bottom line. A Stanford study indicated that a whopping 90% of the millennials strongly prefer working for a company or leaders that have demonstrated social responsibility. Bill Gates has a history of being a leader who gives back to the community, the country, and the world through the Bill 
and Melinda Gates Foundation. Bill Gates said, you have heard of Black Friday and Cyber Monday. Well, there's another day you want to think about, and that's Giving Tuesday. On the Tuesday after Thanksgiving, shoppers take a break from their gift buying and donate what they can to charity. Lisa, what do you think of Bill Gates' words and the effects of his philanthropy? You know, I have respect for Bill Gates. I think he was a brilliant pioneer in his younger years. And even though he is rated as one of the richest men in the world, I think his true definition is not by the dollars in his bank account. He did co-found one of the successful tent companies, Microsoft, but he's also extremely generous with his foundations and his donations that he's given over the years. So I think Bill Gates has rolled up his sleeves. He's been a hard worker. I think in his early years, he was driven by his ambition and his desire to create and keep creating the next best thing. It's my understanding that he was a taskmaster and expected all of his staff to be on board with his envisions 24-7. Oftentimes he would sleep over at the office and never come home. It was just work, 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 work. And it wasn't so much about the money. I think he was just so brilliant and so gifted. He just had to have that next big challenge. And so kudos to him for doing that. But over the years, his bank account kept adding a few more zeros and a few more zeros. I think now he's quoted at 90.9 billion dollars. I can't even fathom that, but I read online that he said when he passes away, he has three children and each of his offspring are going to get 10 million dollars. So that's 30 mil. So after that, everything else is being delegated to charity. And I think he and his wife did a wonderful job of doing that. They haven't just spoken about, well, we should consider being philanthropic or we should consider about establishing these you know, different charities. I think they did an excellent job of doing that. And that goes back as far as 1994 when he established the William Gates Foundation. And they support such things as international education, world health, investing in low-income communities throughout the world. And his mother was touted as being a bit of a philanthropist herself and did a lot of work and donations to charity. And I think that was kind of his role model. And he realized, you know what? I have an obligation to not just be wealthy, but to donate my gift of wealth to charity. And I wanna make sure that a greater percentage of my wealth ends up in the hands of charitable organizations than just in the hands of my family, because he felt that that was more important. And maybe he had a, a shift in his later life as perhaps some of us do, where we just kind of realign our priorities and realize, you know, it's not all about the money. It's about what is my true gift to the world that I go down in history as being the richest man on the planet that I had a gazillion dollars and that made me rich and famous. No, I think perhaps he has come to the understanding that he has the wherewithal and he has the dollars to donate to these organizations. And some of those that he has donated to is a lot of education in charter schools and common care standards for kindergarten through 12. He's also donated a lot of time and energy into the identification of infectious diseases and chronic diseases. And way back in 2017, he stated that those are the two biggest issues in the next decade, chronic disease and infectious disease. And so he's had a strong voice in this COVID situation that's you know come forth, so much so that he donated $150 million to research to COVID. I think he has a voice in the game and he has a lot to say. He's also donated a lot of dollars to Alzheimer's. And he's given his time and his talents to a lot of 
organizations that have needed him. So I think not only has he walked the walk, but he's talked the talk. So I think dollars don't define Bill Gates. I think he's a true example of leadership and what leadership can be in the midst of having all of these dollars and how he's funneling those dollars, to my understanding, into the communities and making them stronger for it. And one other interesting point is he considered himself a groundbreaking employer. Apparently, if you work for Bill Gates and if you deliver a child or if you adopt a child, you in turn should get 365 days of paid leave because family bonding is that important to Bill Gates. Awesome. Awesome. Yes. Thank you, Lisa. Value five is communication. Strong leaders demonstrate the value of communicating consistently and excel at listening, giving clear direction and being open to feedback and criticism and absorbing new ideas. I'm going to put this out to everybody. How effectively is the Trump administration in communicating? I think they're very good at communicating. What they're communicating, however, is negative values. Uh, Pat's uh, example here of FDR uh, saying all we have to fear is fear itself was really a great motivating speech at the time. People had suffered, not that, actually, I don't remember how long into his term he said this. I should have looked that up. But they were in the Depression not quite too long, not for the full like, 10 years, but the confidence that it instilled in the people, I think, was, was amazing. Now, you contrast that with what our current president says. I hate to use his name because it, it gives him validity and uh, some respect that he doesn't, I don't think he deserves. But his communication, he, does, he is able to communicate. He gets his word out, but it's usually the wrong word, and he says it poorly that really is aimed at his base. It's not aimed at the general population, I don't think. I don't think it can be because the general, the general popul educated population listens to this or reads what he says and wonders how he got through grade school. Whereas FDR was a very well-educated man, uh, a very cultured individual that this man is not. So I, I, I think I disagree that he, he is able to communicate. It's just not very well. It's like using a Mont Blanc pen versus a crayon. Very good, Bill. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, FDR gave that speech when he took office in 1932. But thank you, that's good, thank you. Anybody else? When you made that comment, Bill, about the pen, <laughs> it made me think of all of the, the bills that Trump has passed. And after he signs them, he always does this little parade wave and the document is like a quarter of the page and his signature is like 75% on the page. And I just, I feel like he's running home from kindergarten saying, look, mom, look what I did. The bill could be something like, well, I passed the bill to, you know, throw your Kleenex in the circular file. And he's got a parade wave that because it was amazing, I guess. Yeah, maybe it's the only thing he's ever accomplished that uh, meant anything. I don't know. Oh, well. Well, let's move on. Where we've finished the five values, how do presidents comfort the nation in mourning or tragedy? Every generation has a defining moment. When the nation suffers a tragedy, we look to our leaders for compassion, com comfort, and guidance. FDR had the Great Depression. Reagan had the Challenger. 
a spacecraft incident, Clinton, Columbine, Bush 9-11, Obama, Newtown, and the Baptist Church shootings, and Trump, COVID. So Bill, we did touch on this shortly. Franklin Delano Roosevelt stated during the Great Depression, we have nothing to fear but fear itself. During World War II, he held weekly fireside chats on the radio for Americans. How did his words impact the people hearing this on the radio? Well, I think in several ways. They gave them, they gave the American people comfort and confidence. Comfort in that someone was looking out for them, someone was paying attention and confidence that he was the person who could lead others to get the job done correctly and I guess efficiently would be another aspect. I think those fireside chats were amazing. I think, Jim, did Jimmy Carter try to do some of those fireside chats? I know Reagan did. Did Jimmy Carter do them? I think he did. I think he did. As well. And every time they, they were done, I felt a, a bit more confidence in my government, that my government was not a malicious entity trying to get me, as I do now, that they were, well, again, paying attention to the needs, hopes, and dreams of the American people. And I don't think this administration is doing that. I know we're trashing the current administration, but there's just so much material uh, with which to do that. And it's sad. It really saddens me that that is the case because I don't have confidence in this government at all. I agree. It's a very frightening time we live in. And I've lived through 1968 with the demonstrations and Martin Luther King dying and Bobby Kennedy and the Democratic Convention riots where we thought our government was going to be taken down and, and society was collapsing. But this is really frightening. As frightening as 1968. I would almost, almost, almost welcome a military coup. I really would. Almost. Not quite. But I do have confidence that the military at least would do the right thing and eventually we would get back to a democratic rule. But I think, again, this administration is, I think it's working against the people. It's working for the current president and not for the rest of us. I don't know if I would agree with that. You've heard me say many times, nothing is ever so bad that it can't get worse. That's <laughs> true. Pitchforks. I'm, I'm kind of scared that the people who are really doing things behind the scenes love this situation because Trump likes to hear himself talk, if nothing else. People are focused on what he's doing, what he's saying. In the meantime, the people who are benefiting from this are working behind the scenes. That's kind puppet. of scary. He's their puppet. He's a big distraction. Yeah. Now he's like that shiny object that we're looking what? at. And I'm wondering what we'll find after he leaves. What will we find that has been changed? I think a lot of things have changed that we don't realize. Has anybody read Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy? No. No, you haven't read it? Some of you have? You remember Zaphod Beetlebrot? Yeah, yes, two heads. Well, well he, Zephyr Beetlebrot was the president of the universe. And his job, his sole job, was to be a major distraction so that the people who really ran the universe could do their nefarious deals or deeds, and no one would be the wiser because of Zaphod Beetlebrot. He was their front man, and he was the biggest distraction in the universe. Well, I think we're going to find out. I, I, I heard on a newscast the other day, we're going to find out after he's out of office, if he's ever out of office, that all these deals with the COVID um, responses, uh, financial rescues, 
Trump and his cronies have benefited, and we won't find out until it's too late, until he's out of office, how devastating it is, where they're taking money that should have gone to small businesses or to people, and they're, in, they're putting it into their own pockets. So one day we'll find out. Okay, to a brighter subject, Eleanor Roosevelt essentially invented the role of the modern first lady. She became her husband's surrogate at political events and traveled nationwide and to the South Pacific during World War II, buoying the morale of servicemen and improving diplomatic relations. After FDR's death, she was an advocate for the UN and Truman, and Truman appointed her the first delegate to the UN as she advocated for human rights. What, Sarah, what leadership qualities did Eleanor Roosevelt convey? How do you think this impacted the future leadership of women in America? One of the main things she wanted to do was get equality for women. She was very much into human rights and civil rights and women's rights. She was very much an activist until the day she died. She was our longest serving first lady. She was a la lady that came from extreme wealth, but she had a alcoholic parents. She had a very troubled childhood, so she could relate well to the people and what they needed and what they wanted. And she wanted to raise everybody up. It was not a grab power, grab money situation that you see in some other people. She actually was the real deal where she wanted to better the world, and she did. She was not a flashy person. She wasn't a celebrity. In fact, many people thought she was rather ugly, but that didn't stop her. What other people thought about her didn't stop her. She kept going because she knew what was right and she was going to try to do and bring that into the reality of the United States. Eleanor Roosevelt was one of the uh, names that we, well, we chose the name Eleanor for our daughter because of people like Eleanor Roosevelt. Such a strong name, strong woman, strong-minded, brilliant. The Atlantic Studios produced a new short entitled Donald Trump, A Study in Leadership, showing world leaders in comparison to President Trump. Leaders Macron, Mer Mer Merkel, Angela Merkel, Trudeau, and President Moon Jae all speak of the evidence-based policy on facts, the need to take the disease seriously, of empathy and solidarity. Trump speaks of hoaxes, dis disinfectants, as miracle cures. How has Trump's speeches or formerly his daily briefings affected Americans' responses to the COVID crisis? I think his way of speaking polarizes people. They're either out to prove him right or prove him wrong. Either way, it gets people motivated. I believe that people are more anxious. Um, what, what I think happened when, when Trump talks about hoaxes and that it's just a way to bring him down so we can't win the election. It raises the anxiety of the people because we don't have a clear path. We don't have a clear method of how are we going to deal with this COVID-19. And even if we do it the wrong way, if we were all kind of had a path that we could go on instead of him saying, well, every state, you're on your own, you decide what you want to do, that it has made it harder on the American people instead of helping us. 
I think that when Trump talks about hoaxes, disinfectants, simple-minded fixes like that, he's appealing to a certain mentality. Educated people know that it takes a long time to develop a vaccine, study what's happening, number one, find out what's going on, and then find a cure. It takes a, It's a process. It is not an overnight fix to talk about, for one, first, to disparage research by saying, well, this is a hoax. There's nothing really here to look at. It's all smoke and mirrors. It sends the wrong message. And as I said, educated people know that it is a process. There is a process in place to take care of things like that. It is time consuming. It doesn't happen overnight. People who are educated know this. People who are not educated disparage this. And so it gives them their fix. It's a hoax. Don't worry about it. Take hydrochloroquine, if you can even pronounce that word. Drink bleach, whatever. He just sends the wrong message consistently. I think the same message was delivered a few days ago when he said, I firmly believe that all houses of worship should open their doors wide and we should fill the pews. And some churches have said, we're not ready for that. We don't want that. Again, doesn't come from a place of fact and safety for the parishioners and all of those who are gathering there. I think it comes from the basis that he feels like if he can get the churches back open, then all these people will flood into the church and he will become, you know, the superhero of the day because I was able to allow people to reconnect with their their faith or their path of origin and their belief. But I don't think he really has put a lot of thought or consideration into that. So I think that's where the states and the governors have really taken a strong lead. And I applaud so many, including our governor, who has really rolled up their sleeves and given a lot of thought process and not you know, just opened the floodgates and said, okay, I understand economic ramifications, but we're going to do this in increments because it's the smart thing to do. It's the safe thing to do. And I've never once ever envisioned that coming out of the president's mouth. You know, this is what's safe and this is what needs to be done. And it has to be done in increments with him. It's like all or nothing. And I just think there's such a flip of the switch between the governors and the president. Well, and the other thing is he's bringing in, playing to his base by stating that Planned Parenthood has stayed open and some other organization and that the churches have not been allowed to. So he's playing into his base, again, going back to the abortion issues, playing it into that. Last evening on one of the talk shows that I listened to, Rachel Maddow had said that in southern Minnesota, she focused on Annandale and um, another town outside the Twin Cities, that they were going to reopen, but the three priests were all stricken with COVID. One of the priests died. If they open, they're going to infect their parish. Obviously, they're not going to be reopened. The archbishop is defying the, the governor's order as well. I think, if I'm remembering correctly, that Pope Francis even stated that it's not a sin if you don't go to church during this time. And I think he, he expressed that to everyone of understanding of it's okay, you can worship in your house during this time frame because your life is more important to God or whoever you believe in. So staying at home is a better choice than going to a church. And there are very successful churches going online and having their services there. So you don't have the community coming together, but you still have that sense of being able to express yourself and be with others, even though it's not physically. The one thing that kind of, that bothered me was when he decided to liberate some states like Minnesota and Michigan or whoever didn't want to open up. And my first thought was, excuse me, I don't want to be liberated, especially by you. I'll make my own decisions. 
about what is safe and what isn't safe, how I'm going to react, if I'm going to wear a mask or not. And I do, when I go out, I wear a mask because I feel that it's not my right to infect other people. This morning on one of the talk radio shows, Governor Andrew Cuomo of New York stated that he and his staff have been working every day for the past 84 days with no days off. One of his staff asked if they could have part of this weekend off and he told them, when the virus has a day off, then we have a day off. He also told of a quote from Teddy Roosevelt who stated, courage is not having the strength to go on, it is having the courage to go on when you don't have the strength. Lisa, after the school shootings at Newtown, President Obama had tears in his eyes when remembering the children during his speech. And then after the Baptist church shootings, he gave a speech and then broke into amazing grace to the surprise of the congregation. How did his words affect Americans' sense of loss and tragedy? I think President Obama had such a connection with the people in that way. And again, he may have had terrific speechwriters, but all of that set aside, I think he really had a good sense of empathy. You felt as if you were a square in the patchwork of a quilt that he got and he understood. You felt as if, you know what, he's had coffee out of a paper cup, he's eaten off of a paper plate, whereas current administration has had a silver spoon and a Waterford goblet. And I just think he showed a lot of empathy and a lot of connection during so many times of tragedy during his presidency. And when I could see him standing up there delivering that speech, you could just see in his eyes, that could have been his two daughters. It could have been his neighbor's children. But to see all of those innocent children just slaughtered and, and mowed down for no reason. And you just felt as if his own child had been taken from him. And I think you could really feel that. It wasn't as if he had put onions in his eyes before he got to the podium so he would cry. You know, you just felt that sense of he really had a sense of understanding and, oh my gosh, I can't imagine what those parents are going through. And I felt that same sense of connection during the Baptist church series. And I vividly remember when he started the words of Amazing Grace and the whole room went silent and then they started joining in. I thought, oh my gosh, this is just so poignant and so riveting. And it's not as if he was doing it for brownie points or re-election. He was a human at that point. Yes, he was our leader, but I think all of his leadership credentials aside, he stripped all of that off and he showed us that, you know what, I'm a human, I'm a person, and this affects me as deeply as it would affect any other American. And to have that sort of empathy and to show that and to convey it in a way that you felt like, boy, he really gets this, he really gets this. And I don't think we've had that in other presidencies. We have in some form, but we certainly don't have it in this presidency. After I read that question, it made me think of a news conference that I watched, oh, maybe it was like a year, a year and a half ago when Haiti went through that weather pattern and they were almost destroyed. President went down there with his wife, Melania. The first time I saw him not wearing a suit jacket, he had on like maybe a windbreaker or something. And he threw a roll of toilet paper out into a sea of people. He had this huge grin on his face and he said, I have so many more cases where that came from. And I just thought, wow, how does that differ from the message that Obama delivered when, you know, those children were massacred and when all those people were taken out of the church? I thought he's throwing a roll of toilet paper 
he may as well scrape something off the bottom of his shoe that's not a Tootsie Roll. I was so offended by that. I think Obama just had a knack for wearing his heart on his sleeve in a good way, because I think we need that from our leadership. We need to know that, you know what, not only have I been there, I feel that, and I just don't get that connection with our current administration. Don't throw me a roll of toilet paper, because I'll... (laughs) Or don't throw me paper towel because I'll throw back a roll of toilet paper. That's what I meant to say. <laughs> and it won't I'll be a few of them. I will remember that. Okay, Carissa, in a famous meeting at the White House with President Trump, his cabinet and military advisors, Speaker Pelosi stood up, pointed her finger at, the, at Trump, looked at him in the eye and stated, Mr. President, all roads to Russia lead to you. Trump and his generals and cabinet were just stunned. Their mouths were open. What did you think of her when she stated that? How did the men in the room react? I did look this up and I could only find a picture of what they were talking about. For just looking at the picture, I think at that time, Pelosi's emotions may have gotten in the way a little bit of her calmness and cool, like collectiveness. And, and I can understand that that happens to everyone and everyone at the table looks really tired and just are probably sick of the back and forth arguing that continually happens in any situation when Republicans and Democrats get together and those types of situations. And I think, unfortunately, she fell into the trap of feeding into another person's drama and kind of feeding the trolls. I think that in some instances, standing up when you're presenting something or explaining something can be very powerful. But I think at that time, especially with the the aggressive finger pointing, it took away the impact of her of whatever she what she was talking about previously. Because people remember actions instead of words a good chunk of the time. I, for me personally, I don't think that was a good way to present yourself. I can see how it kind of gets overwhelming when it seems like someone's trying to gaslight light you in a certain way or just kind of pushing against what you're trying to explain. For the people at the table, what I saw was, again, very tired people. I mean, ha- each side was looking at each other or at her. And if I remember correctly, the military officer that was next to Trump, he was just looking down at his paper and just closed his eyes and was like, really? Let's just get this over with. And he just seemed really tired of the whole thing. I think that's how a lot of people feel during this time frame. I'm looking it up, actually. It was right before the impeachment. Prior to that, at the beginning of the meeting, Trump was berating Pelosi and the Democrats, Chuck Schumer. So she became angry. I I have a lot of respect for Pelosi because she will stand up. She She will take so much. She's taken so much abuse from Trump. And then she comes back, she stands up. I don't think she overplays it, but she puts the line there saying, I'm not going to take any more. And I think that's one of her moments of, I'm not going to take any more of your abuse. I'm not going to take any more of your lies. Those types, I think she was making a stand. He's afraid of her. He's afraid of her. He can't, he can't deal with her. He doesn't know how to deal with her. My reaction to Speaker Pelosi was that she's a strong, smart woman. And when she said that, 
I thought, I wish she was our president. I, I stood up and cheered. I was just going, go, Nancy. Okay, so Bill, Mother Teresa won the Nobel Peace Prize in 1979. 1979 was not a very good year for peace around the world with conflicts, disputes between nations, Pakistan, Israel, Iraq, Iran, people had different views and ideologies. During her acceptance speech, she recited the serenity prayer of St. Francis of Assisi and everyone attending the Nobel Peace Prize ceremony prayed along with her. Can Mother Teresa's words have any impact today with the extreme views and ideologies, racism, radicalism, just plain craziness around the world. Well, is everyone familiar with the serenity prayer? I can recite it. Uh, God, give me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, courage to change the things I can, and wisdom to know the difference. Do I think that has can, can have any impact on our lives today? You know, there is a passage somewhere, I've read somewhere, it's just in the past, there are none so blind as those who will not see. So you can paraphrase that to say there are none so deaf as those who will not hear. There are people who can hear those words and take them to heart. There are people who can't. And I think we've all seen ample evidence that there are people carrying Nazi flags, uh, white supremacist flags, flags that divide people who will not, never take these words to heart, not ever. And that leaves the rest of us to try to fulfill these, the promise of these words. I think we'll win eventually, but it's not going to happen soon. It's, it may happen after this next election. It may not. And that's what I'm afraid of. So do I think these words can have an impact on us? Yes, I do. I'm just, I'm just not sure when. Thank I'm definitely an optimistic person, but lately I've become fairly pessimistic on what's going to happen to our country, especially if the current president doesn't win, and, and even more especially if he does. I heard a version of that prayer. God, give me the serenity to accept the people I cannot change, the strength to change the one person I can, and the wisdom to know that one person is me. Oh, I kind of like that. I know people are acting crazy about certain things, but do we really want to stop that? Who decides what's valid and what isn't? Now, what's-his-name isn't setting a very good example, but there's so many things that in the past were thought crazy, turned out to be maybe not directly but indirectly helpful. Wars are always bad, but yet we gain a lot of technology during them. The money could be better used that we use in exploring the space, could be better used to help people who are needy, but we benefit from the technology that's been developed. Where do we decide which or even protests, which ones are valid, which ones aren't? I remember when I was growing up, there were a lot of protests against the war in Vietnam, like to think that in spite of Kent State, remember that one? Oh boy. It actually benefited a lot of soldiers who might have otherwise died over in Vietnam. Gary, President Trump was delivering daily speeches lasting almost two hours on his updates about the COVID crisis. Now during this time, Dr. Fauci and Burks also had a few minutes at the lectern, but Trump took up most of the time. Now I'm thinking when I'm watching this, Fauci and Burks have to stand there for two hours instead of doing any research or just even getting some rest. Who was most effective in conveying, met, conveying confidence and knowledge with Americans during the speeches? 
the medical experts or Trump? I think it depends on what you want to believe. The people who support Trump would prefer to listen to him and believe everything he says, and there's plenty of them out there. I think I heard one of our members saying when he goes up to a certain part of the Twin Cities here, he's got to be careful what he says about Trump because they are staunch Trump supporters. They are in the South where my daughter lives. Got to wonder, I think the only reason Trump had Fauci and Burks there was to make it look like they were standing behind him in full support. And if you allowed them to talk too much, people might figure out they're not. I'd like to give him credit. I think I know what he's trying to say, but he just does a lousy job of saying. And even my daughter agreed with that. As much as she supports Trump, he's hurting himself every time he opens his mouth. It's pretty inconsiderate, if nothing else, to invite, maybe not even invite, maybe he told them they had to be there or they'd get fired. But to have two people like that, as you pointed out, could use their time better elsewhere, anywhere else, even if it was just sleeping. But to expect them to just stand there and listen to you talk, it's just, just inconsiderate. Hopefully, people understood that. And if they didn't agree with Trump, they just ignored him and waited for Fauci and Burks to, to say what they had to say. I think what they need in the government, especially when our president's Obama was no different. He liked to hear himself talk just as much as Trump did. And I remember that when Obama first took office, he was on CNN every morning at our closed circuit TV. I got sick of that. Trump's not the only one, but they need somebody, a moderator, who has the right to cut him off without worrying about any repercussions. <laughs> I don't care who the president is. We got to invoke some Toastmasters time limits for these guys so that they can't get up there and just ramble on and on and say things that are totally ridiculous. Well, I also was thinking when Fauci and Burks are standing there, they're both in their 70s. And I don't know about you, but if I had to stand there for two hours straight and not being able to sit down and had to basically be at attention, I would have a hard time doing it. And I'm a little bit younger than them. But just to stand there for two hours with everybody watching you, is gruesome to your body. Well, I'd like to thank everybody, and I would like to point out this book. I'm going to hold it up. The book is The Words That Changed the World, and it's a, a book about all the famous speeches that have been given in the past century. So I got a lot of the quotes and perspectives from that book. So thank you, everybody, for partaking in the podcast. Thank you for listening to the words we use. Own your voice and make your words matter. If you like what you heard, please subscribe and review.